all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. Mississippi, it's time for Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo here with my co-host. Dr. Alan Harris. Yeah, she's back. And we're going to be talking about breast disease today, a big problem for women. And we have a plastic surgeon here to help us sort things out. So you want to call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 We'll be right back after the break. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Governments from around the world are expressing solidarity with the Turkish government a day after suicide bombers attacked the main international airport in Istanbul. The U.S. was among a large number of countries to offer assistance to Turkey. NPR Scott Horsley says President Obama spoke by telephone to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan this morning. President Obama called President Erdogan from Air Force One while on his way to a summit meeting in Ottawa with his counterparts from Canada and Mexico. Obama voiced sympathy on behalf of the American people over the terrorist attack. He also said the U.S. will support Turkey with whatever resources it needs as it works to investigate the deadly attack and beef up security. Turkish officials blamed the suicide bombing on the Islamic State, though there was no immediate claim of responsibility from the group. The attack on the airport in Istanbul bears similarities to an ISIS attack in Brussels three months ago. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. As Scott noted, President Obama's meeting with the leaders of Mexico and Canada, the host country today, the White House confirms consensus on an environmental agreement among the North American nations to achieve what it describes as 50 percent clean power generation by 2025. That's among a series of measures outlined to advance clean energy and speed up development. The meeting was also expected to cover trade and the fallout from the United Kingdom's decision to leave the European Union. Donald Trump is taking aim at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which concluded that the trade plans put forth by GOP's presumptive presidential nominee could drag down the U.S. economy. Trump tweeted today that the chamber should fight harder for the American worker. In an economic speech he delivered yesterday, the billionaire businessman said... He would do away with current trade deals that he considers unworkable, such as those with China and other countries, and redraft new ones. He's also called for new tariffs. Britain's outgoing Prime Minister David Cameron says opposition Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn should leave too. NPR's Peter Kenning reports the two leading political parties plunge further into leadership disputes less than a week after the U.K. voted to leave the European Union. Prime Minister David Cameron is stepping down after his side lost the Brexit vote and several Conservative Party members of Parliament are signing up to replace him. Labour Party lawmakers, meanwhile, voted overwhelmingly Tuesday to push Jeremy Corbyn to step down as well. 
Today in Parliament, Cameron spoke bluntly across party lines about what he thinks of Corbyn's refusal to step aside. It might be in my party's interest for him to sit there. It's not in the national interest. And I would say, for heaven's sake, man, go! Corbyn has strong support among Labour members, but lawmakers fear that with him at the helm, Labour would lose badly in the next general election. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, London. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was up 231 points. This is NPR News. UNICEF warns 69 million poor and disadvantaged children under the age of five could die from preventable causes by the year 2030. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva that UNICEF is pressing governments today to step up their efforts to address health, education, and other matters affecting children. UNICEF reports 80% of children most at risk of dying from preventable causes live in South Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, with nearly half occurring in India, Nigeria, Pakistan, Congo, and Ethiopia. The agency finds a wide inequality and survival gap exists between poor and rich children. Globally, it finds children in the poorest 20% of the population are twice as likely to die before age 5 than children in the richest 20%. UNICEF predicts nearly 170 million children will live in extreme poverty by 2030 unless issues of inequality are tackled now. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Schlein in Geneva. Union leaders presenting or representing United Airlines' 25,000 flight attendants have reached a tentative contract agreement with the carrier. If approved by the rank-and-file membership, the PAC would put all of the airline's flight attendants under the terms of one unified contract for the first time since Continental merged with United more than five years ago. Until now, flight attendants from each of the former airlines had been operating under separate terms. The Dow is up 227 points. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include AT&T, with a network and solutions for helping companies sense and adapt to meet the demands of business. Discover the power of and with AT&T. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation at gatesfoundation.org. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. We're so glad to be here with you this morning. It's always uh, a pleasure to try to share the latest and greatest information about what's going on in medicine and how it may pertain to you. And it's also great to have Dr. Uh, Harris back with us. Uh, she'll be in and out on a regular basis now. And, oh, hey, what, what have you been doing, Dr. Harris, while you've been absent? Well, I finally finished all my training. Really? Like, I don't even know how many. 11 years of yeah. post, post-college post training. So I finished fellowship, pulmonary and critical care. And so I'm on staff now at UMC, um, working in the ICU there. Um, I'm at the VA also doing ICU as well as pulmonary outpatient. And we're going to be opening an ILD center 
Interstitial Lung Disease Center at UMC starting in September. Fantastic. So that's exciting. Well, good. Well, she'll be talking about about all that lung stuff uh, on the program and taking your questions on that. But today, it's Breast Cancer Day, and uh, we'll be talking with a special guest who I'll introduce in just a second. Uh, I know we've had a lot of previous programs about breast cancer. And by the way, we're, our lines are open at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And um, one of the things I've been pleased to see happening, not only at UMC, but at some of the hospitals throughout the state, is the building of breast cancer teams. Because breast cancer is much more common than people think. And they have this team approach. Right, because it, it takes... You know, there's medical doctors that treat with chemo, um, and then there's surgeons that treat surgically, and they all need to be on the same page and working together with the patient um, to come up with the best plan. And if they actually talk about the patient and work together with the patient, it actually works better than bringing the surgeon in at the end of the procedure rather than the first, especially if they're trying to do... Uh, conservation therapy yeah and there's pathologists and radiologists too everybody gets together and can in one room and can agree on something it makes things go a lot faster too for the patient so we're mighty lucky to have dr ben mcintyre who is a south carolinian uh uh and is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon that means that also he looks young he's really 150 years old because they have to do training on training on training on training to get to do this and it's gotten to be an art form it's as close to artistry and medicine as i think we we have dr mcintyre it really is uh, a lot of our plastic guys are painters and sculptors and other things how did you get interested in breast cancer well um as i told you earlier oncology was always a very uh, interesting part of my training and background and uh, I think it probably started with uh, my aunt. My aunt was a general surgeon, and uh, she was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And after all of her treatments, uh, was unable to practice. And, oh, goodness. Uh, oh, goodness gracious. So uh, I've made it a, a, a mission in my life and in my practice to uh, you know, treat patients and, and help ease suffering and uh, you know, really uh, try and rebuild and restore uh, not only patients' uh, body, but, uh, you know, their mind and spirit. You know, someone can make it through all of their treatments and feel good about how they look and uh, themselves at the end of the day and walk with confidence uh, in church and uh, in their community, then uh, I feel like I've done a, a, a really good thing. Right. And, boy, that's uh, that's the kind of thing uh, folks want to hear Uh what is the female perspective on this whole problem of breast cancer? I mean, I know what the male perspective is on prostate cancer. We're all going to get it if we live long enough. And it's almost gotten to that point with breast cancer. Yeah, I think the one in seven women now get breast cancer. And part of that is that, that people are living longer. Um, and it's definitely more common the older you get. But, you know, it's with the new um, guidelines, there's not agreement on when to screen, but even as early as 40, you got to start screening. And, you know, that's pretty young. Um, we're at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. taking your questions on breast cancer today. Or your stories. If you've got a story about what happened to you with breast cancer, it might help somebody else to uh, know the uh, 
know the outcomes. I think on our previous programs, we've talked about uh, denial. And uh, I think uh, all of us have seen, I've seen in, in my general practice, um, uh, women who've had found things with self-exams and haven't come in. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true across all of medicine. But, but you know, you, you feel a lump maybe and you think, oh, it'll go away and not wanting it to be something bad. So a lot of people delay going to the doctor because they don't want to hear something bad. Um, but that's so important, especially with breast cancer, because it's so treatable now if it's found early. Um, so getting that diagnosis, if you find something, it might be nothing. It might be a cyst or whatever, and then you can be reassured and go about your life. But if it is if it is cancer, getting early treatment, um, you can live a totally normal life. So where do you come into the picture on the reconstructive side? Do you I know y'all have a bunch of people, you have someone come in and you, there's some kind of diagnostic workup, which you might want to tell us what that is. And then the surgeons are brought in to decide, get biopsies and decide whether it needs to be treated surgically or not. And I know that some people are being treated with no surgery now. So how does that shake out in your day-to-day practice? I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo here with my co-host, Dr. Alan Harris, and we're here with Dr. Ben McIntyre, who is a part of the breast cancer team at UMCC, UMCC? Well, I don't know. Do we add an extra C? UMC? UMC. There's yeah, two M's, whatever that not is. two C's. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and we're trying to uh, get you to give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring if you're interested in this topic. So how does this play out? And uh, somebody finds a lump or their doctor finds one or a mammogram's positive, and what happens? Well, I'm just going to take a step back and just note that uh, it is important to come in, get your screenings. If you feel a lump, you need to get uh, examined. And uh, you should be positive that, uh, you know, we've had increasing survival rates in our breast cancer patients. We're now up to an 89% uh, uh, survival rate among all stages of breast cancer. Um, so that's, you know, we've really made some improvements. Um, as far as where I come in, I, I'm very fortunate to work in a great uh uh, cancer Institute here in Jackson, and uh, I'm surrounded by uh, professionals that are dedicated to breast cancer treatment all the time. So uh, that includes medical oncologists, uh, radiation oncologists. I have access to two uh, breast surgeons. We have image-guided uh, biopsy services and radiologists and pathologists that all uh, have dedicated their careers to breast cancer. We also have genetics, so genetics is definitely an important component to uh, breast cancer. I'm seeing more and more uh, younger women who have a strong family history that have been diagnosed with uh, hereditary uh, 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 genetic uh, predispositions to uh, breast cancer. And where I come into play is is hopefully from uh, uh, the, the very beginning. You know, there are uh, opportunities for me to work in collaboration with uh, my uh, breast surgery colleagues to help optimize uh, the appearance and the shape of of the breast. Sometimes I'm involved with uh, um, small cases, and sometimes they're they're very big cases. So So what is the typical scenario? Well, the average patient... Somebody comes in with a lump. That's basically it, right? Either by x-ray or otherwise. So the average patient that I see has a new diagnosis, and uh, we spend a lot of time talking about that. Obviously, it's a very uh, traumatic uh, uh, 
situation for both the patient and their loved one. Um, so usually they've had a, a callback from a screening mammography, and they've had uh, a tumor seen on that, and they've undergone a biopsy, which has confirmed their diagnosis. And that's a stick and a needle in the breast? That's exactly right. So we are uh, typically uh, using an ultrasound probe or a CAT scan is used to identify the precise location of the tumor, and then a small needle is inserted through the skin uh, directly into the tumor, and uh, samples are taken, and typically also a marker clip is placed within the tumor, which helps us identify the precise location within the breast uh, so we can come back and later remove it in its entirety. Okay. Um, we're going to go to the phones now. Uh, we've got some lines open, one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Bill in Gulfport. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning. How are y'all doing? Doing well. Thank you. Uh, well, um, I just wanted to I just wanted to mention y'all was talking about it takes a team, and I totally agree. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer about a month ago, I guess, uh, maybe a little more. Uh, they went in and uh, she went in for a mammogram. They found the spot and they wasn't sure what it was. They called her back in, and uh, sure enough, it was a it was a tumor. It was cancerous, and uh, and uh, she's already had surgery and she's starting her chemo now. And I just really wanted to. Uh, Wanted to say, you know, the doctors, a lot of doctors get a bad rap about being not good and, you know, and they don't do things the way they're supposed to. But everybody that's been on my mom's team, I think, has done exceptionally well. She's up in Nashville, and uh, the surgeon was great, and uh, the, all the other doctors that uh, discussed the chemo and the radiation and everything with her, uh, they've, been, they've been outstanding. I, I was really really proud of their team looks like everything's going to be all right oh that sounds good and we appreciate uh your sharing that experience and and it points out the fact that uh breast cancer is a family disease um it affects everyone in the family because you always think the worst case scenario so what what is how many of these uh, tumors that end up positive actually require uh, end up requiring breast reconstructive surgery. I know it used to be everybody had these massive surgery uh, surgeries to remove the entire breast, and frequently there were uh, additional surgeries up in the ex, up in under the arm if there were positive nodes up there. And the big problem that that I saw was women who had terrible swelling uh, in their arms couldn't use their hands appropriately like your uh, like your relative experienced and so forth, uh, is that still the kind of surgery being done, or what? What? What, it, what is the? What is the more typical approach that y'all are using? You know, we've really come a long way when mastectomies were first done in the turn of the century. The previous century, uh, the entire breast was removed, the underlying uh, pectoralis muscles were removed, and really uh, all the tissue was removed down to the rib cage. And this was obviously a very traumatic and uh, severe operation. Since then, fortunately, we've made a lot of progress. Um, smaller tumors are removed uh, with image-guided uh, biopsy techniques and, and lumpectomies, so potentially only a small area of the breast could be removed. Unfortunately, we still have to give our patients radiation uh, if they've had a lumpectomy, so their treatment is, is uh, a bimodality treatment. If their tumor is larger and the breast is unable to be saved, 
then uh, yes, we do move to a mastectomy. And I will say that our mastectomy techniques have evolved. What percentage? Evolved. What percentage of uh, women have to have a mastectomy with with breast uh, cancer? You Is know, it that's a lot that's, or little. It's pretty common. You know, in, in my in my practice, um, I probably will treat uh, two, even four patients a week that have had that will have a, a mastectomy. Um, I'm not exactly certain what percentage of the overall uh, patient population that represents, but it's enough. It's enough work for me to to keep my schedule busy. Um, we are working on modifying our mastectomy techniques to where more skin is preserved, and even in some instances, the nipple can be salvaged, and uh, that really adds to to the appearance of, of the breast. And and really, quite frankly, we're, we're able in, in many cases to achieve a very nice, soft, natural appearing breast. Do you do that with implants, or do you do? And if if so, do you do it just on one side, or do you try to make the other side match? Well. I gave a speech yesterday out in Hattiesburg, and we talked about all the ways that uh, the breast can be rebuilt. And it's really uh, quite staggering the number of different procedures that uh, have come about in the past two decades. I mean, really, we've talked about using not only implants, but uh, our own tissue, which we call that autologous reconstruction. So sometimes some of the belly fat uh, can be used to rebuild a breast. Someone figured out... Uh, uh, about 20 years ago that they'd done enough tummy tucks that they thought, well, maybe all this extra skin we've removed, we can uh, use it for something useful. And uh, so that, that's that been a, a nice evolution, and that's something that uh, I've brought to uh, the University of Mississippi. Um, other techniques that uh, are out there are not only just uh, using an implant, but in many cases, uh, we're not able to rebuild the breast in one step. Normally, it takes several steps. Mm-hmm. So we've had implants that have now evolved where we can do it uh, in, rather than two steps than, than only in one step. We have uh, implants that last longer. Uh, they're more durable. Uh, their safety profile is excellent. And uh, I've been really pleased with both of those techniques. Fantastic. Those are, those are some amazing things to talk about. We're talking about breast cancer today. On Southern Remedy, and we are fortunate to have our co-host, Dr. Alan Harris, here helping me with us today with a woman's perspective on breast cancer. And we're also talking uh, with Dr. Ben McGuire, our plastic and reconstruction McIntyre. That's why she's here. Uh, (laughs) Dr. Ben McIntyre from our uh, breast cancer team about reconstructive surgery. And all this is leading up to a July the 14th TV special at 7 p.m. on MPB TV, a Southern Remedy special on breast cancer. So give us a call if you want to talk about this. We have open lines. It's a good chance for you to find out how this is managed and what the complications and opportunities are uh, when you use a, a breast cancer center. We're at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, and we're waiting for your call right after this break. Support for MPB comes from the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center of Alabama at Children's of Alabama, a cardiovascular care center for children in Birmingham, Alabama. More at childrensal.org/heart. I'm Robin Young. There are now many survivors of America's mass shootings, and Orlando opened old wounds. 
there's constantly reminders for everybody who survives one of these things to deal with. But at the same time, I think uh, focusing on that you're here. So many of the people that have died in these shootings probably would trade places for you in a heartbeat. Next time, here and now. Tomorrow morning at 5 on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Good morning. We're back. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Rick DeShazo. I'm Dr. Alan Harris. We're here with Dr. Ben McIntyre, who is a reconstructive breast surgeon at university. Um, we are talking about breast cancer today. We're at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We've got phone lines open right now. Um, so let's talk about screening a little bit. Used to be that mammogram was... Uh, recommended starting at age 50 once a year and there's been in all the groups that that recommend screening we're all in agreement with that and now different studies came out and everybody each group interpreted them a little differently and so now the screening recommendations are all over the place Um, some of the groups say start at 40 some of the groups one group says start at 50 one says 45 what do you think? Dr. And Dr. I sent a, I sent somebody for one who's 20 this week. Why did, what was your decision making process uh, there? Everybody in her family had uh, early onset breast cancer. And I also sent her for genetic testing. Um, and, but I really wasn't sure whether her insurance was going to pay for it. So I told her when I did this, I said, get ready. So the American cancer society recommends, uh, an initial screen at age 40. And then typically every other year until you're age 45. Once you're 45, then you'll begin annual screening. And those that age group, the 45 to 65 age group, is going to be the highest, the age group with the highest incidence of detected breast cancers. So it's really important during that time period to get your annual screening. Now the ACS also recommends that's that American College of Surgeons, American Cancer Society. Oh, okay, so, all right. So. Uh, at age uh, 55, you should consider even going to biannual screening. Now, Which means you, twice a year, right? Correct. Not every other year. Correct. Okay, now say that again. The American Cancer Society recommends starting at 40. That's correct. And then after when, at, going to every other year? At, no, no, sorry. Backwards. So he at, said, he said at age 40, every other year. At age 45, every year. At age 55, every six months, right? Per, Correct. Okay. Are you kidding? That's uh, and the that is not clear. Getting Most people, people are in still, twice a year now. There are many people who are getting screens twice a year. That's correct. So regardless of history, that is correct. Now, if you have a strong family history or history of prior biopsies, you're going to obviously be on a much tighter screening schedule. Yeah. So let's talk about family history a little bit. And let me let me tell you let me tell you why I got that twenty year old done. Yeah. Uh, 
I, it's, it's my experience with colon cancer screening that, you know, you start 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And she had two relatives who had cancers in their early 30s. So I started 10, oh, yeah. 10 years Absolutely. early. And I don't know whether that's covered by guidelines or not. Well, Frank, quite frankly, I don't care. Exactly. I, because, you know, these guidelines are developed when they do a study with a whole bunch of people and they look at a trend and look at cost versus, you know, coming up with false. So it's it's over a population, but that doesn't apply to necessarily each individual patient. So it's still up to each person and their doctor to well, make Well, it's supposed the best to be decision. up to the doctor to work with the patient on this, but sometimes, uh, you know, it's a nightmare getting the insurance companies to approve these mm-hmm. studies, and they are expensive. And uh, it it really, but, you know, it it takes hours to get these approved for situations like that, depending on the insurance. We're at 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464. And we're going to go right now to the phones to Fred and Paddle. Good morning, Fred. Yes, good morning to all of y'all. Enjoy the program. Thank you. This this is a question I have. Uh, More men are showing up with breast cancer. And my question is, if... A man compared to a male compared to a female, and with the same type of growth and uh, uh, type of cancer, is the same amount of tissue and treatment the same as it would be for a female? Is there is there less uh, male removal of tissue compared to a female? And uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm going to hang up and listen. Thank you. Well, breast cancer forms in the breast tissue so in a male the actual amount of breast tissue is very small most people don't know it but it's still there so typically a male will still need a mastectomy often the only amount the only remaining breast tissue is underneath the nipple so typically the nipple has to be removed the treatments for breast cancer in a male versus a female are essentially the same however there still be requirement for lymph node sampling and potentially removal of all the lymph, na- lymph, lymph glands in the armpit region. And you still may need chemotherapy and radiation. So it is it is definitely not a common thing to have it in a male, but still can show up nevertheless. Yeah, so let's talk about chemo, radiation, surgery, all those things. You we know. didn't finish up the screening oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, all let's right. go so back what, then. what do you think as an internist? And let's get him to critique I, it. I, I'm mad about it. I offer it at 40 um, because that's, you know, the youngest that it's um, recommended. The USPTF or whatever, U.S. Preventative Task Force recommends a little later. American Cancer Society recommends 40. So I bring it up to my patients at 40 um, and let them be part of that decision. Um, What about self-exam? You know, I do it, and I think it makes sense to do it. Um, it hasn't shown in studies to be any benefit, but it's so, why not? You know, why wouldn't you do it? So it's so easy. And and that brings up a good point. When we're talking about screening, screening means everything's normal, and we're looking for something wrong with the screen. If you have a lump, it doesn't matter how old you are. That's got to go get checked out. We're no longer screening once you felt a, felt a lump there. That's That's not a screen. That's a diagnostic tests for that for that lump and insurance is going to pay for that that's a totally different thing right it doesn't matter if you're 18 years old that needs to be checked out so we are we have a lot of people um internists doctors for adults put a lot of people on spironolactone now for any hypertensive therapy it is a good drug but it causes gynecomastia 
uh, you know, breast tissue growth in a lot of people, in particular men. And um, I'm fortunate to work with a wonderful nurse practitioner who's my practice partner, and she's always done breast exams on everybody. So every man that we see together has been getting a breast exam. And I don't always do breast exams on men. Well, she's picked up three breast cancers in men in the last 10 years we've been working together. And it's been a save on every one of them. So what is going on? Uh, Does gynecomastia make you want to do this more? Uh, Does that have nothing to do do with it? I can't find a lot of information about that. Should men be having breast exams? Uh, well, well, men can't really get a mammogram because of the, the size of their chest. Um, I think just like anything else, self-exams, if you feel something that you don't think should be there, you should get it checked out. Now, gynecomastia is a condition where both breasts will have breast tissue growth. It will be symmetric and painless. So if you have a cancer, more than likely it's going to be only on one side. It will probably be harder um, you may have uh, retraction of the nipple or dimpling of the skin or some, something that may alarm you that it's more than just just a benign condition. But definitely if you're concerned about anything, get it checked out. Yeah, and that's one of those things where, you know, that that's a good question. Does, gyne- does gynecomastia put you at higher risk? And that's something that hadn't been studied, but that's something. And, 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 and spironolactone is having more and more indications now. It's standard of care in heart failure, which we're seeing more and more heart failure with our obese population. Um, so that's something that maybe in 10 years we'll know um, if, there's, if there's a link there. You're listening to Dr. Alan Harris and Dr. Ben McIntyre in its breast day on Southern Remedy. Uh, we're having, we're promoting our TV special on MPB television, July the 14th at 7 PM. That's going to talk about, uh, some of these issues, but not going to be able to give you all the detail that you have an opportunity to get today. So give us a call at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven MPB ring. I know you're in and out of your car and in and out of the kitchen and so forth and so on, and you're hearing bits and pieces. Uh, we've talked a little bit about controversies with breast cancer screening. We've talked a little bit about uh, breast cancer in men. We've talked a little bit about reconstruction surgery. By the way, it's my understanding that the prognosis, the outlook for breast cancer in men is not as good as it is in women, and maybe that's because it's late, late to be picked up. I don't know. Would you have any information on that? Well, I'm sure all the female listeners out there know that men are just hard-headed. And uh, (laughs) most men are going to let something go well beyond the the time that that a well-meaning woman would. So uh, I think that probably has a lot to do with it. So, Dr. Harris, I cut you off. You wanted to go to a different topic since we have open lines at 1877-MPB-RING. What do, what do you think we ought to talk about next? Well, I was just general principles. It can be confusing. Chemo, radiation, surgery, how does it all fit together? He's talking about lymph node sampling. So just to bring some clarity to that. So anytime with any cancer, um, surgery and radiation are the way you treat it locally. So in the area where the tumor is. So if you can cut it out with surgery and then radiate around to get local control. Chemo is... 
you know, IV medicine usually. There are some chemos that are pills now, but that's for um, to control spread of the tumor. Um, and that's why the lymph node sampling is so important, part of the reason. And you're, that because that's how the cancer moves. That's how breast cancer moves. Not every cancer moves that way, but the lymph nodes under your armpit is where the breast, the lymph glands and or the lymph ducts in the breast drain first. And so if it's going to spread to other parts of your body and breast cancer goes to bone, it goes to brain, it can go lots of places. Um, and so that's how it's going to get there. And so looking at those lymph nodes is how um, the doctors can determine give them more information to determine if you're at risk for it spreading. What used to happen, um, and Dr. McIntyre mentioned this earlier, you know, it used to be took the whole breast and then took all the lymph nodes out of the, out of the armpit. Um, and that's what le- would cause a lot of times people to have this horrible edema, this horrible swelling of one arm. And now that's not necessarily, um, there's, you know, what has to be done. There's ways to identify what's called the sentinel node, which is the first node that, um, the lymph ducts drain to and sample that one and then go subsequently from there. Is that right, Dr. McIntyre? That's exactly right. Okay. You should have been a surgeon. <laughs> she yes. is in her head, I'll tell you that. She's a uh, heck of a doctor. Uh, so so uh, how does somebody know when they go to a doctor that the doctor knows what they're doing uh, if they've got a lump? I guess by listening to us and figure and figuring out what's supposed to happen, you're supposed to get a bi- uh, imaging and biopsy, a needle biopsy, and so forth. Uh, but uh, is it can everybody do take care of this, or should they be, go to a center? I feel strongly that you should go to a center or someone with a lot of experience in in uh, breast cancer evaluation and treatment. You know, I'm in a very special place where we have basically everyone on our team does this on a day in and day out basis. Now, there are plenty of good providers in the community that have made this a part of their mission also and are fully capable of, of uh, doing this. But I think the important questions you need to ask your doctor is, you know, how many cases are you treating every year? How many patients are you seeing? You know, what are your outcomes? And, uh, and uh, you know, I think getting a, a good uh, recommendation from other patients. You know, if, if I see a patient and, and they ask me, do I have any patients that are willing to share their experience with me. I, I can provide them with plenty of telephone numbers and people that are more than more than happy to share their experience and, and how they felt with me treating them or our team treating them. So those are the types of things you need you need to, to That's look a great, great and information. Don't be, and don't be scared to get, ask for a second opinion. We're so polite in the South. People don't want to ask their doctor to re- refer them for a second opinion because it might hurt their feelings. No. No doctor that's worth anything is going to be offended by you getting a second opinion. The more people, smart people that are working on this, the better. So don't be afraid to ask for a second opinion. All right, we're going to go to the phone now. Marsha in Vicksburg. Good morning, Marsha. Good morning. Uh, I had a question about the types of reconstruction. Do they still do uh, tram flap reconstruction? But then I heard you mention lymphedema, and I have lymphedema, and it, it it's doable, but you, I'd just rather not have it, you know. <laughs> so did you have a mastectomy, Marcia? Yes. Uh-huh. How long ago? Uh, 1998. Great. So you're doing well. I, I hope so. Except yeah. for this, uh, and we ought to talk a little bit about follow-ups, too, uh, except for the swelling there. So what uh, she mentioned a term that's unfamiliar to most of us, including me. Uh, are there different types of 
plastic procedures that you do, and how do you know if you're getting the right one? Yeah, so let, let me just explain uh, the tram flap. So the tram flap is a way where we rebuild the breast with tissue taken from the abdomen. Now, this tissue is living, breathing tissue, and it requires blood vessels going into it. So the way that plastic surgeons devised a way to move that uh, tissue from the abdomen all the way up to the chest was they found out that they could move the entire rectus abdominis, that's your six-pack muscle, up along with this tissue. Now, techniques have evolved. Can you put it back? Because we work so hard. They once, work so hard to get it working right. <laughs> uh, once once it's moved, it's moved forever. And um, ways we have de- have gotten around the weakness and uh, the uh, deformity to the abdominal wall that occurs with that operation is there's something called a deep flap. A deep flap uh, basically preserves most, if not all, of the muscle and uh, the innervation, the nerves that run to it. And we really just take the tiny little blood vessels running to the skin and we and we do uh, basically a transplant of tissue up to the chest wall, and usually I have to do those reconnections uh, to blood vessels between the ribs, what we call the mammary vessels, or in the armpit, which we call the thoracodorsal. Boy, that's a vessel. major procedure. So you cut cut out a big hunk of skin, and all of the blood vessels and nerves that go with it, and you pull it up and make a breast out of it. Is that right? Well, that is sort of. that is the tram operation. The deep flap has been devised to minimize all of that all of the issues. We're trying to minimize the cutting of nerves, the minimize of uh, cutting of tissues. And what that translates into for the patient is you have a quicker recovery, you're back out uh, taking care of your children quicker. Uh, and the other advantage is to having your own tissue reconstruct your breasts is that it's there forever. It's your own tissue. It's going to be as lifelike as anything out there. So Marcia uh, had a tram flap, but she had a swelling up of her arm. Right. Why? So, so that's very common. So I would imagine that uh, Marsha probably had uh, all of the lymph glands removed. It sounds like she had uh, you know, a mastectomy with a full axillary clearance, and uh, 25 to 40% of those patients are going to have lymphedema. Now, there can be varying grades of lymphedema where it's just minor. You have some swelling around your wedding rings and things, or it can be just completely disabling, and uh, you need daily wrapping and compression therapy, and uh, there are lymphedema therapists out there that, see patients but can uh, you predict who's going to have that problem um only by the only by the numbers we can't really predict you know there'll be patients that have a full all the axillary mm-hmm. lymph nodes removed and they will not have any lymphedema so what other option so this uh, tr- this new version of that causes less swelling after the surgery is that what you're saying really two different things. So we're talking about rebuilding the breast uh, in one aspect with the abdominal tissue. That has no effect on outcome of lymphedema. Um, the, other, the axillary clearance, you know, how many lymph nodes are ultimately removed? It's nice if you can only have one or two sampled, what we call the sentinel lymph node biopsy. Obviously, if you only have one or two lymph nodes removed, you're going to have much less edema per Hopefully none. So I, I, I don't, uh, not being a male and very pragmatic and, you know, and insensitive to the world, if I was a woman, I would ask, uh, which one is the one that is most procedure is most likely to give me a great looking breast like my other one that matches and the least bit of trouble and the least number of surgeries. Is there one procedure you got that'll do that? I get asked that every single week. Everyone asks me, you know, what would I recommend? Well, maybe I am wife? sensitive. <laughs> but not Dr. All... Harris, am I sensitive? Uh-uh. No, oh, okay. No. All right. But <laughs> not nice, everyone though. is uh, <laughs> not everyone's created equally. There are larger breasts and smaller breasts. 
Some people have smaller breasts and want to have larger breasts. So that in itself presents a challenge, and that will change the type of reconstruction that I Well, if I was going to a plastic and reconstructive surgery like you, who's really good at it, if I had a small breast, I would want to make it a little larger at the same time. Can you get a do-over at the same time if you want it? Because you're a man. That's why you're saying that. Oh, okay. Not every woman All right. I've got myself in deep trouble <laughs> Let's here. Let's go to the phones. Let's we've go got, to the phones. We've got Danita in Greenville. Good morning, Danita. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. I have a question. Um, my sister got breast cancer, and my family has no breast cancer on either side going back generations. And... Once we were over the surgery and the chemo and and everything, and she was well, the doctor told her, her oncologist said, the reason you got breast cancer is because of the food that you're eating, the vegetables and the fruits and all the pesticides and different chemicals that the farmers are putting on them. From now on, you are to eat organic food. So she has taken on the task of going and finding the organic food. And the rest of the girls in the family, as much as we can afford it, are doing the same thing. I was wondering how much you run into this if you buy into this thinking, um, if, you, if you find this a lot. Because there was no and is no breast cancer in our family. An excellent question. So first, let's talk about family history. So we hear, you you might have even heard, because Angelina Jolie had this, and so it was all over the media. So people may have heard the word BRCA, which is an abbreviation. It's BRCA, which is a gene. And that gene puts you at really high risk of having breast and ovarian cancer. Other than that, you know, breast cancer is common without a genetic predisposition. Um, and the older you get, the more common it is. But you can have breast cancer at a younger age and still not have a genetic predisposition and not have a, have a first-degree or second-degree family member with it. Um, what causes it? Who knows? Um, you know, I, I disagree with the doctor saying this is what caused it. There's no way that they can say that for sure. There's all kinds of theories out there that, you know, perhaps, you know, what's changed in the last amount of, you know, years and our foods are different and you more know, estrogen you know, and our chicken. And right. All, all these things. And so there's all these theories out there, but none of it has been proven. Um, it's always a good idea to eat the healthiest food you can eat, you know, eat fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables and, you know, minimize pesticides and, you know, not having meat with a lot of hormones. But, um, but you can't, we, we can't say that that's what caused it, in my opinion. What do you, what do you think, Dr. McIntyre? I think that, uh, you know, definitely the most common reason you're going to get breast cancer is just by chance. Genetics are an important factor that we're finding out, but still the most common reason you're going to get breast cancer is, is just chance. It's, it's bad luck. You know, maybe in the future we'll, we'll identify more genes. And I will say that our geneticist is his panel that of, of genes that he samples is actually uh, pretty long. But we still do not know all the reasons that you would get breast cancer. And certainly there has not been a clearly identified dietary component as a causative factor to breast cancer. And, and I apologize that your sister's uh, physician uh, 
told you that, and uh, and really I will say there, there's no way to know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. So, Danita, since she is very much up on this, I'm going to throw this one concept out that is helpful, at least to my patients, in understanding this. The present understanding of cancer risk has to do with a combination of genetics and chance, and this is called epigenetics. So in most cancers now, uh, the biologists are thinking that it takes a genetic predisposition and an exposure. That could be a viral infection. That could be anything. And uh, to say that we know any more than that right now just it, it it really it's bad enough to have cancer, but then to have to do all kinds of uh, behavioral changes that aren't, aren't really necessary is uh, is beyond the pale. Especially so. if you know, like you referred to, Nita doing it's about eating organic as much as you can afford. Organic food is expensive, and so don't you know? Don't create a, a hardship just to do that because you're afraid that it's going to end up causing cancer. But healthy you eating know? is great, yeah, and you're you, one of the big oh, proponents yeah, yeah. of that. Absolutely. Fresh fruits and vegetables all day long. Eat them out of your own garden. Grow them. You know what's... Don't do know. like Dr. Rick, though. Eat so many of them, you start gaining weight from all those uh, fruits. You got to watch your calories still, right? I started well, with, eating with almost fruit. nothing but fruit. Well, with fruit, yeah, you got to be careful. Vegetables, green vegetables are freebies. Eat all you want all day long. Um Fruits, yeah, we can't just eat fruit all day long. Right, like peaches from uh, yeah. Alabama. And we've got Scott. Hey, Scott, what's going on in Russellville? Um, not a lot. We get uh, two public radio systems here, and, and we take advantage of both of them. Well, good, good. And we like yours, and we like the UAB one, too. And we like those Chilton County uh, peaches, which I haven't seen any of them yet. I think they're on the way. All right. What What's your question? Uh, the... The lady doctor had had begun to talk about connections, uh, um, family connections, and how that might affect the screening process. Um, I'm I'm interested because of my wife and and her mom had late onset, her grandmother had late onset, and most of those sisters had um, late onset breast cancer, and. Uh, I'm also interested. I have a first degree connection on colon cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how do all of those things affect screening? Well, great, great question. Go ahead. I'll uh, attempt to answer the breast cancer question. I think that uh, given your wife's uh, strong family history, it sounds like she's had at least four family members that have all been diagnosed with breast cancer. She should definitely be screened if she hasn't already been. You mean the genetic screen? The genetic screen. Yep. That's you sit down with the geneticist, they go through your family history, um, they you know, talk about the age of onset of the cancer for each individual relative because that is actually very important. If you've had a first degree family relative uh diagnosed with breast cancer under the age of fifty five, you're at a much higher risk for having uh hereditary breast cancer versus someone who gets diagnosed in their 70s, and uh, it's more than likely that that is going to be by chance. Um, so, uh, And when we say first-degree family relative, we mean basically your mom or your sister, pretty much. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Mom, sister, and, you know, aunts. And then also it's important, you know, it's looking on down the, the family tree because it could be not only breast cancer, but ovarian cancer is, is another mm-hmm. Uh, type of cancer that runs in heredi- hereditary breast uh, cancers. 
We have open lines at one eight seven seven MPB ring. We're going to be on the air another ten minutes or so, and we'd like to take your call if you give it to us at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. It's Breast Cancer Day with Dr. Alan Harris and Dr. Ben McIntyre, uh, and I'm Dr. Rick. So, what is this the colon cancer piece? Is the 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 guidelines allow early screening? Like they, the insurance companies will pay for early colonoscopy for people who have first-degree relatives with early colon cancer. Do, do these screenings apply to women who, like the one I told you about? You know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not up on all the insurance stuff. I refer, you know, we've got great nurses that work right. with us and everything that that help navigate some of that. Well, stuff. Well, do you but, agree with me that if you had oh, yeah. early onset, you would start mam- mammography yeah. earlier than forty? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right. Yes, I do. And I, I was really unaware that they had recommended twice yearly screening. What's well, change? It's it's changing. Yeah, a lot. And that's so. just that one recommendation, right? Right. That's American Cancer. Center. All right, we yeah. got an email. Uh, call uh, uh, email. All right. The email is what is the recommended cutoff age for mammogram? Great question. I am an active fit in excellent health 71 year old female. I had a small benign breast lump removed in 2005. My doctor said I no longer need a mammogram. All right. So the cutoff ages for any kind of cancer screening. So with cancer screening in general, we're looking to find a cancer early to uh, um, improve your life expectancy. The current recommendations are age 75 and older. You should have a discussion with your doctor about if you need, continue to need mammograms. Um, this, what she's saying here, she's active, she's fit, she's in excellent health. And so in general, and it's, it's arbitrary, but in general, we talk about 10-year life expectancy. If we think you're, if you have, you're, you're going to live longer than 10 years, then cancer screening makes sense. Um, so it's completely depends. It's hard to set a hard age on anything because so guidelines give you ages, but they are guidelines. They aren't absolutes. Um, and so, you know, a 75 year old that plays golf every day and walks 18 holes isn't the same as a 75 year old who's bed bound. So I've had several, uh, older women come into clinic and all upset. My doctor has stopped my breast cancer screening because I'm 72. He says, I, he or she, usually he. Does that mean I'm going to die in the next 10 years? <laughs> so, yeah, all this has to be interpreted. Uh, and, and there's some interpretation coming up on July the 14th at 7 p.m. Please mark your calendars for Southern Remedies, A Plan to Survive, a special on TV, MPB TV, July the 14th at 7. And you'll be really really impressed by some of the people you'll meet on that series so spread that around with your family it's july the 14th at seven who needs a how can you tell somebody needs a lumpectomy versus a mastectomy well i think there's two things to take into consideration one is the tumor size so if you have a smaller tumor and your breast is larger then we can remove a small a small amount of the tumor and preserve your breast shape and form uh, you will still need radiation. So there'll be s- some people that uh, are afraid of radiation or have a reason they cannot get it. Let's say if they've had a lymphoma treated in the past with mantle radiation and they can't get a second dose, then that person may be more likely to have a mastectomy. Now, let's say if you have a smaller breast and a larger tumor, 
it's more likely that we're going to recommend a mastectomy. Additionally, if you have a tumor that's really close to the nipple, we're probably going to also recommend a, uh, a mastectomy. Why, why is that? Well, when the nipple is gone, usually uh, it, it's more difficult to preserve the shape of the breast. So uh, that that's probably the, the main reason. Can you do things to make it look like you have a nipple if you have to remove the whole thing? That's, that's exactly right. So if we have to remove the entire breast, we usually start from scratch and, and rebuild everything. We rebuild the breast mound, the volume, the shape, and uh, ultimately the, we can do a nipple reconstruction and uh, we'll often tattoo the color back to it. That's a that's a, a part of it. Um, you get to choose the color. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> yeah, that's actually. Well, I, uh... I know a lot of people who would take advantage of that. So what what about the uh, what about the how long does it take? You have do you have to wait after the mastectomy to start working on your reconstruction? I know there's a period there. Some some people are really would like to do it in one step. So Can you do it in one step? We're actually working to try and get more patients uh, in front of a plastic surgeon before they have their initial uh, oncology, oncologic procedure. And if I if I have access to you and you're willing and you're going to have a mastectomy, your your overall result at the end of the day, at the end of your treatment, is going to be the best if we're able to do your reconstruction starting at the time of your mastectomy or starting at the time of your lumpectomy. Well, you save a whole surgery, right? You say, you're going to save more operations. You're going to save more tissue, which is important. So that your your own breast tissue is the is the best that you're ever going to have. So, uh, well, how how do they know that it's not going to recur in your reconstruction when you do it that quickly? It doesn't make any difference, I presume. It, it, is, it is, does not make any difference in recurrence rates or in detection rates. Most importantly, so if you have re- breast reconstruction, you're not at you're not going to have you're you're not at risk for having an undetectable cancer later on in the future should it recur. Now the nipple is very important part of the cosmetic piece. I'm still not straight now. If somebody asked me about that, um, if you have a routine mastectomy, you may or may not have the nipple removed depending on where the mass of the tumor is. Is that correct? And that's what decides. It's closer to the nipple, the more likely it's going to be removed. Is that it? That's exactly right. Because so it can hide out around if, that area. If your tumor is within four centimeters of the nipple, we're more than likely going to recommend removing the nipple. Well, I've learned a lot here, as you can tell. You've been listening to Southern Remedy with our special guest, Dr. Alan Harris, who is not a guest. She's a regular. And Dr. Ben McIntyre, who is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon at UMC. We'll be back same time, same place next week uh, to take your calls. And in the interim, if you want to drop us a note, you can do that at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. NPR's Here and Now is next on NPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening. Support for MPB comes from the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center of Alabama at Children's of Alabama, a cardiovascular care center for children in Birmingham, Alabama. More at childrensal.org slash heart. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue mobile app. More at bcbsms.com. High pressure builds in and in Jackson... 
That's going to keep any chance for rain away. I know. We could desperately use more rain, but unfortunately, our rain deficit will grow as we go through the weekend. And, oh yeah, 4th of July.